We're so glad that y'all have joined us online for worship today, and we're positive that God has something specifically to speak just to you. We want you to know that you are always welcome here at First Baptist Azel, and that you can connect with us by going online to fbcazel.org forward slash connect. Now let's hop back into the sermon and hear what God has for us today. Matthew chapter 16, verse 15. What a great passage. Would you stand, stand with me as we read God's word together today? These are the words of Christ. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this passage and these words and this great promise. Guide us. Convict us. Give us wisdom during this time. Teach us today. And may our hearts be teachable. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. This morning's message is entitled, Storming the Gates in 2020. Storming the Gates in 2020. Jesus shared or, or um, taught his disciples through this powerful statement in Matthew chapter 16, and he talks about the gates of hell, storming the gates of hell. And it is a reminder, by the way, that hell is not storming us. In this, uh, this scenario, this picture, we are storming the gates of hell. That is, the, the gates of hell are at hell. <laughs> the gates of evil are where evil is, and storming the gates of evil is a picture of conquering evil. Not being conquered by or attacked by evil, but attacking evil on the offensive and overcoming evil. Storming the gates in 2020. Last month, I mentioned to you a meme that I saw on social media that I, I found quite humorous. And the, me, the meme said, today, I'm going to put out some candy, cook a turkey, wrap some presents, and call 2020 a wrap. Do you remember that? It's this idea of frustration in light of the pandemic and what a mess this year is on so many fronts from, from a medical front, from a political front and everything from murder hornets to, to strange seeds in the mail from China. It's just an odd year. It's a strange year. And so there's this, this desire on your part and my part, and we're not alone, that if we had a choice, we'd just kind of wrap things up and call it a year. The problem with that is that perspective, frankly, isn't biblical. It's humorous, but it's not biblical. I promise on Judgment Day when we stand before the throne of God, when God says, why did you as an individual, as a family, and as a church not do anything in 2020? And we'll see, God, uh, maybe you weren't paying attention. There was a pandemic, you see. Or we could say, hey, the government told us we couldn't meet or we couldn't do this or that, so we just didn't do anything. God's not interested in what our government says. <laughs> That's a terrible excuse on Judgment Day. God is interested in us bearing much good fruit regardless of what season in life we're in. And so that's what I want to share with you today. What should the church be doing 
during this time. Our world will, will say or describe it this way that we in this world are in limbo. In fact, there's tremendous pressure in our government, in our culture, to put everything in the limbo. We're just waiting, 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 waiting. And there are some things that we cannot do this year. There's no way around it. A lot of things canceled. <coughs> but there are some things that we can do, and I believe we can still glorify God and accomplish His will this year in 2020. Not next year, not in three years. Those years have their own challenges and their own opportunities. But right here, right now, there are some things that we can do. And so I began to think as I've been going for the last three or four weeks, what can we do as a church? What can we do that is productive? I want us to think about what can we do rather than what we can't do. And so I want to think about that this morning. I believe that regardless of what the media teaches and liberal politicians believe, this country desperately needs its churches, especially now. So today in a challenge for this great church, especially concerning the next six months, I want you to keep several important directives in mind. Every year in January, I preach a state of the church address. I've never done that twice in a year, and I'm not calling this a state of the church address. But in the state of the church address every year, I lay out challenges and opportunities for the year to come. And I feel, because this year is so unique, there is a need for us to consider even the last six months. What can we do? What, what can God accomplish through First Baptist Church and through your life in six months? Whatever it is, don't write it off. Don't give up. Don't just be in limbo. Don't buy into that, that we can just do nothing and that we're helpless until this is all over. So I want to give you three very simple directives, very important directives today about what you and I can do in the next six months. And the first is this. By the way, the first is obvious, but I've got to say it anyway. Number one, keep meeting. Keep meeting. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. That passage you know so well, the writer of the Hebrews, we don't know who he was, but he spent 10 chapters or nine chapters talking about uh, deep, profound doctrine in theology about the supremacy of Jesus and how he's our sacrifice for our sins. And then in chapter 10, he applies that in some real sensible, practical ways in our life. And so he says in the middle of that, this statement in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. Now, this is especially challenging in 2020, and I'll tell you why. First of all, we went from one service to two services, and so I split the church. Didn't want to split the church, but for the sake of social distancing, we had to go to two services. And I make no apologies about that. There are some advantages to having multiple services, and they are great advantages. We have tremendous opportunity to grow. We have space in here right now that you can share with somebody this week and invite them to church, and there's plenty of room for them. And you can tell them there's plenty of room in the second service. You can socially distance. You don't have to worry about that. Come and join us. And so there is opportunity. But not only did we split the church between two services, the church has been split between in-person and online. We have a number of people watching live online right now. A good part of our congregation still watches online. 
So we have some people coming, and the ones coming are in two services, and the ones not coming are watching at home. Now, here's the challenge. First of all, it, it, splitting you up like that, it becomes more and more difficult to tell who's here and who's not here. When we're all in one service and there, there was nothing online, I could just span the room during my message. And this is what preachers do, by the way. We don't tell people this. But we span the room and we can tell who's not here and who is here. I could take a roll <laughs> in my mind. And if I see somebody missing, I think, you know, I need to call brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so this week, find out if they're okay and see what's going on in their life now. I don't know who's here and who's not here. It's hard to keep up with everybody. And here's the other challenge. And for those of you watching at home online, this is a big challenge for you. And it, it's okay. It is what it is. But you need to acknowledge the challenge. Here's what Satan will do. When we're watching anonymously at home, first of all, we can turn it on and it shows that we're watching, but we can turn it off in three minutes and nobody knows. We can also get up and go to the bathroom or go eat or do whatever we want to do and never even come back. It is easy because there's nobody there watching us. Or we can listen to it in the background while we're doing other things. And before long, we're not even listening at all. Of course, you can do that even if you're here. <laughs> you can drift away mentally. And so here's the temptation is simply quietly to drift away. And my concern as a pastor and every pastor's concern is that when this is all over and the pandemic is done and there's a vaccine and I'm giving you a best case scenario, everything's fine, and we go back to normal services, there are people that I will never see again because somehow, over the course of the months, Satan tempted them to drift away from his church. Don't do that. You need to understand and see that that's what Satan wants for you. That's his plan for your life, and don't let him accomplish that plan. You keep attending. The Bible tells us very clearly, explicitly. By the way, he doesn't give any exceptions. and doesn't give any government exceptions or anything like this. He says, you keep on meeting. Pastor and theologian John MacArthur, who I don't always agree with, uh, he is, however, a very well-known and very well-respected pastor and theologian here in the United States. He has a church, a large church in California. Now, California, you know, what can I say about California? They're a little bit kooky there. And so they passed rules for churches, and they're among the most restrictive in all of the United States or all over the world. And the rules were, if you're above a certain amount, I think it's 100, you, you can't meet. You just can't meet. And, um, and so large churches like John MacArthur's church, they legally are not allowed to meet. And then they said this uh, several weeks ago, and you probably already know this. They, they said, okay, for you smaller churches, you can meet, but you can't do this one thing. What is it? You can't sing. <laughs> well, um, I just find that comical. It's so stupid, it's funny. How can a government, how can anybody say to a church, okay, you can meet, but you can't sing? I half expect them to come out this week and say, okay, you can meet, and you can worship, but no praying. We don't allow praying. It's just, it's just crazy. It's, it's, it's hard to conceive. If I told you last year that the government was going to come out and say, all right, in your services, you can't sing anymore, y'all would laugh. You would laugh at me for being crazy. It just sounds unthinkable, but that's exactly what they've done. So initially, uh, John MacArthur went along with the regulations from his government, but he has rebelled against that, and they met officially this last week, and he wrote this uh, uh, letter as a response. 
He had shut down his service in compliance, services in compliance to government requirements, but he changed his mind. And so here's, the, here's a portion from the letter that he posted this week as they met in defiance of the government there in California. He said this, As God's people, we are subject to his will and commands as revealed in Scripture. Therefore, we cannot and will not acquiesce to a government-imposed moratorium on our weekly congregational worship or other regular corporate gatherings. Compliance would be disobedience to our Lord's clear commands. Some will think such a firm statement is, is in exorably in conflict with the command to be subject to governing authorities laid out in Romans 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2. Scripture does mandate careful, conscientious obedience to all governing authority, including kings, governors, employers, and their agents. He says in Peter's words, not only, Peter says, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. That's 1 Peter 2.18. Insofar as, by the way, unreasonable would be the government in California. Insofar as government authorities do not attempt to assert ecclesiastical authority or issue orders that forbid our obedience to God's law, there is, their authority is to be obeyed whether we agree with their rulings or not. In other words, Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 still bind the consciences of individual protesters and rioters. Uh, excuse me. Uh, of Christians. <laughs> I messed up there. We are, he says, to obey our civil authorities as powers that God himself has ordained. John MacArthur is saying this, generally speaking, you and I should obey our government, even when that government is lost and pagan, like it was in Paul's day of the first century. The Roman government was terrible, horrible. They hated Christians. And yet Paul says, you and I are supposed to submit to them. But then there are exceptions also in the Bible as well. So he goes on to say, however, while civil government is invested with divine authority to rule the state, neither of those texts that he talked about that we should obey the government nor any other grants civic rulers jurisdiction over the church. God has established three institutions within human society, the family, the state, and the church. Each institution has a sphere of authority with jurisdictional limits that must be respected. A father's authority is limited to his own family. Church leaders' authority, which is delegated to them by Christ, is limited to church matters. And government authority is specifically tasked with the oversight and protection of civic peace as well-being and well-being within the boundaries of a nation or community. God has not granted civic rulers authority over the doctrine, practice, or polity of the church. So John MacArthur says this, and I, I agree with him, that there are three basic institutions in this world and in history, and God has either permitted or created these institutions. Number one is the family unit, a father, a mother, children. And there are requirements and responsibilities of a family unit that apply specifically to every family unit. And then there is the government, um, whether it's a democratic government, a communist government, or uh, any other kind of government, there is a government. They, they regulate civil matters over their nation and their people. And then there is the church. And in the church, 
That regulates spiritual matters among God's people. Now, one of the great things about our Constitution is our Constitution acknowledges those three institutions. The problem happens when uh, somebody in one institution wants to regulate or control what happens in another institution, another of the three. For example, you as a parent. If you decide as a parent that your children should have only one hour of game playing a week. Now, I don't know what you require of your, your kids, but you say, all right, I've decided as a parent that the only healthy thing to do is my child can only play games on the computer for one hour a week. That's your right. That's your responsibility as a parent. But if you were to turn around and say, I demand, because I think this, I demand that the government pass a law forcing all parents everywhere to only allow one hour a week on the computer. Well, that would be silly because as a mother and a father in a family unit, it is not our function to regulate and pass laws for the entire nation. That's not our function. Our responsibility is our children. Now, as a citizen of this country in a democratic nation, a, a republic, we have a public opportunity to share what we think is right in our political system. But we do that as citizens, not as parents, not in the institution of the family. In the same way, our civil government here in the United States, for example, has things that we should submit to. If you, if, you, if you think that God has freed us from the law, as Paul said, so you can go 120 down I-20, uh, you can't. That's not legal, and God won't condone that. We have to submit to the laws of our nation. But what happens if our nation decides they want to take over the family and take over the responsibilities of a church? What if they exceed their boundaries? Well, we have a constitution in our country that is supposed to guarantee that that doesn't happen. The separation of church and state was never written and never designed to shackle the church. The purpose of the separation of church and state was to protect the churches from the state so that the state cannot institute or regulate what happens inside of a church building because our forefathers came from a nation that did that. They regulated what happened in church, just like China does now. Christian churches there can only teach what is approved by the government. And of course, the government is atheist. <laughs> so you have all these atheist teachings being imposed on the church, and you and I think, that's crazy. Governments can't do that, even though that's what they're trying to do. So what happens when our government here in the United States, does that? Well, we have a constitution to protect us that says you got the government and you got the church. And church, you don't force anything on the government. Government, you don't force anything on the church. You do your thing and you do your thing. The problem is our government forgot that. Or somewhere along the line, for some crazy reason, our government decided, okay, yeah, okay, all right, you've got separation of church and state. What you do is none of our business unless there's a virus. And then as a virus, we just get to take over. And that's just silly. That's what they're thinking, and that's what they're doing. And so it leads to absurdities like, you can go, but you can't sing. Well, that's none of their business. It's unconstitutional, first of all. I don't care what the Supreme Court or any other court says. That is not constitutional. Okay, well, enough of that. <laughs> um, um, uh, for First Baptist Church, by the way, I want to be very clear about this. 
I'm not saying that churches should pretend nothing is happening. But I do believe that the decisions of what, of whether to meet and in what manner we should meet, whether we should wear masks or not, is not up to the discretion of the government. What happens in here is none of their business. It's not in their realm. Um, and the discretion of the church is to be based entirely on the Word of God. That's why when Peter healed somebody and was sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, and the Sanhedrin, the political body of the day, called them uh, to them and said, you stop this. And then they didn't stop it. And they called them back and they said, we told you to stop it. And you remember what Peter said? He said, we have to obey God, not man. Well, that's what John MacArthur said last Sunday in his service. We as a church are called to obey God. And so I'm not talking about what we do, again, out on the highways. I'm talking about what we do in God's house. And if we want to sing, if God tells us to sing, we need to sing. If he tells us to continue meeting, we need to meet. Now, I'm not telling you it's wrong to meet online. For those of you watching, don't turn us off. <laughs> but I am saying it should be the discretion of the church whether we meet online or in person. That's, that's up to us. It's not the function of a government to do that. Um, so I do believe that the decisions that we make to meet and in what a matter are entirely up to us. Whether you're here in person or you're watching online this morning, I plead with you in response to not fade away. There is a paralysis that's happening in our government and in our world and in the business world and every other aspect of our life. And the paralysis is because of the virus, Let's do nothing. And there's no question from a civic point of view, there are some things that should not happen this year because it's unhealthy for the, it's literally physically unhealthy for us uh, as citizens. I'm not talking about inside the church. But the tendency is because we are shut, if they shut down businesses, if they shut down this or they shut down that, this ideal is let's all do nothing all year and then when we get a, a, a solution to the problem, we get a vaccine, then we can all come out and start life back up again. Let me ask you this. There are millions upon millions of people in this world that will not survive 2020. It's their last year on this earth. You might die of coronavirus, you might have a car wreck, you might have a heart attack. All kinds of things happen to all kinds of people all day long. And so what are you going to do? You're going to lay there on your deathbed thinking, oh man, 2020, my last year? I didn't do anything this year. I, God wants your life to matter and count right now. He's not worried or concerned and does not want you to be worried or concerned about January 1st or 2022 or 2023. And then you can start living your life. God wants you to live and be productive right here, right now. As a church, God calls us to bear much good fruit. And he doesn't anywhere in that parable, uh, that analogy that God is the gardener and Jesus is the vine. We are the branches and it's the function of the branch to bear much good fruit. Unless there's a virus, then you don't have to do a thing. Can you imagine that? No, it doesn't say that. You and I have the same responsibility and the same challenge and the same opportunity in the kingdom as we've ever had. Virus or no virus, government or no government, constitution or no constitution, you and I are called to bear much good fruit. 
We were called to do that before there ever was a United States of America. And we will still, as a church, be called to do that long after there's a United States of America. What happens in the Word of God transcends any government or any culture or any virus. So be mindful of that. Don't fade away. As the writer of Hebrews says, don't allow Satan to take you out of the habit of attending church. So the challenge of online, that there is really no accountability, nobody's watching you, and it's easy just to quietly fade away. And Satan knows if he can get you to fade away from the church, he's got you. If you are watching online this morning, thank you for your faithfulness. Don't quit, don't give up, and don't fade away. Because whether in person or online, you are useful and important to the kingdom of God. And while our government may, government may dismiss the Constitution because of a virus, God does not dismiss the Bible for any reason. And we must obey God, not man. That's why we're here. That's why we're meeting. And we continue to meet because God does not have loopholes for viruses. Number two, number one, keep meeting. Number two, be the light. Now, you know I'm going to say this. I've said this before. It, to some extent or another, be the light. Boy, it's a dark world. And anything I've learned about 2020, it just seems to be getting darker. There's not a single time I go into social media or turn on the news or read the news online that I don't become angry. It's just a question of how mad I'm going to get before I turn it off. <laughs> oh, so mad. Uh. In light of that, I have to warn you and me, hate is popular. Right now, hate is extraordinarily popular. It has gained mass appeal, disguising itself, as it often does, as righteousness. From the most conservative to the most liberal, everyone thinks of themselves as righteous. The far right, the Ku Klux Klan, and all of those who are with them that believe in white supremacy, I guarantee they think that they're righteous. The far left, Antifa, or Antifa, and all of those who are causing havoc and riots and murdering people, I guarantee every one of they, them think that what they're doing is somehow righteous. And everybody in between, whatever, the, the, the Republicans think they're righteous, the Democrats think they're righteous, the Independents, we are the, we're a righteous bunch. We, we, we Americans... We all think we're righteous, no matter how. Our prisons are filled with righteous people that are just misunderstood. Everybody's righteous. But it's ironic. The Bible says how many people are actually righteous? Not one. Zero. That's exactly right. So it's odd. That's the ultimate lie of Satan to convince us that we're righteous when we're really not. The Bible says our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. So the world says, and has always said, hate is okay. It's okay to hate. It's a good thing to hate, as long as you hate the right people. I'll get to that in just a minute. It hadn't changed in 2,000 years. We think the world is advancing. It, it hadn't changed a bit. Jesus had to deal with this very issue in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Look there with me. These are the words of Christ. <clears throat> this is Sermon on the Mount, by the way. He said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, 
Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. I want you to know today that was the most radical thing any of those people had ever heard. I assure you that the disciples and the multitudes and the Pharisees sat out there in shock as he said that. Because nobody had ever taught that before. The ancient teachers, the, the ancient religions, the God of Ra down in Egypt didn't teach that. The religion of the Canaanites didn't teach that. The religion of Dagon, the, the Philistine god, that religion didn't teach that. The Jews weren't even teaching that. Nobody believed that. Nobody even conceived of that. I should love my enemy because everybody believed it's okay to hate your enemy. And once you decide it's okay to hate a certain group of people, you've got a list. <clears throat> Here's the problem. There's always going to be somebody on your list. So you're going to spend the rest of your life doing what? Hate. Hating. Hate, 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 hate. And when you stop hating this group or this person, you find somebody new to hate. And that is what's happening in the radical left. You see that. They just hate everybody and everything. Just hate, 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 hate. Now, the world is what the world is. The world is a dark place. You and I, however, have a responsibility not to get pulled into that. Don't light your torch this week. I see it lit all the time on Facebook. Oh man, we're going after somebody all the time. <clears throat> be careful. Oh, be careful. I see it in the news all the time. It's just hate. It should be entitled, Who We Can Hate Today. And then they give you the list of every terrible, horrible thing and every terrible, horrible person that has existed this week. Be careful. Oh, be careful. Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemy. So in our culture, who is it okay to hate? Who's on the list? Who can we collectively, whether liberal or conservative, who can we all hate together? What will unite us as Republicans and Democrats? Oh, I can tell you there's one thing. We can find somebody to hate together. We can light our torches side by side. <clears throat> and of course, part of it is we hate each other, and that's the problem. Well, you can hate murderers, right? No, they're awful. What about rapists and pedophiles? You can hate them. Right? Uh, <clears throat> what about liberals? <laughs> Antifa? You can hate them. Right? What about protesters and rioters? People tearing up those buildings? Does not the hate well up in you whenever you see that in the news? You can hate them, right? So the problem is you've got this list and your torch is lit and it will always be lit and Satan has got you right where he wants you. But against that stands Christ. In a dark world, he says this shocking thing. Nope. If you want to be called sons or children of God, I tell you, love your enemy. Again, that's shocking. The hardest words in the entire Bible. I'm telling you, that's hard. That's hard because I hate them. <laughs> There's people, they make it easy, <laughs> do they not? They make it easy for us to hate them because they're really bad. And those people, the rapists, the pedophiles, and the murderers, and on and on you, you can go, they are awful. What they do is horrible. But just because what they do is horrible doesn't mean that God doesn't love them and that we are not called to love them as well. How about this? We take all the evil people in the world, the, the murderers, the pedophiles, the rapists, and whoever you want to put on your list, Antifa or whoever, why about we take them and we bring them to faith in Jesus Christ? 
we show them the light. Because they don't know. They're in a dark place. They don't know. All they know is darkness. But you and I know better. <clears throat> and so this week, or in the next six months especially, don't get pulled into the negative, angry hatred this world is providing. Be cautious about righteous posts on social media, overly negative reports in the news, and those who have become engulfed in negativity, animosity, and hatred. It is a slippery slope. Rise above it. Remember, <clears throat> you and I are not the gardener. We're not the judge. He is in control. We are the branches, and our function in all times is to bear much good fruit. And hatred and animosity is not good fruit. Lastly, be ready. <clears throat> you keep attending church. You keep going. <clears throat> Excuse me. You be the light and you be ready. I told you last month when I was here, I think that God may be bringing this all to a close very soon. I would. I would look down at 2020 in this world and I'd say, wrap it up. <laughs> I think I'm done. But that isn't for us to decide. It's not for you or me to decide. It's not our part. It's not our place. It's for God alone. Our part is to be ready to be doing what we're supposed to be doing when Christ comes back and this all ends for us. Jesus was teaching His disciples one day and He compared our anticipation of the day of the Lord like attendants waiting for their master to come back from a wedding banquet. They don't know when, but they do know he's coming back from the banquet. Now in the first century, doors didn't have doorknobs. Did you know that? <clears throat> That's something we came up with sometime later. They have doorknobs, and so the way you opened a door, got into a house, is whoever was home had to open the door for you. And you came in. So this analogy or this parable that Jesus gave was about a wealthy man who went to a banquet. Uh, we know he's wealthy. He's got attendants at home. He's got people that work for him in his house. And so he goes home and he can't get into his own home. Fortunately, he's got attendants there so that when he knocks, and they did knock even in the first century, Jesus says, knock and you will, and the door will be open. So we know there was knocking going on. He would come home. He would knock on the door. The attendants would open it. Now, what happens if the master knocks on the door and nobody answers the door because they're all sleeping? Oh, the master's going to be mad. He's not going to like that. I'm sympathetic with the master. I've got three kids. I can't tell you how many times I bang on my door knowing all three of my kids are in the house and I can't get anybody to open the door. And again, there goes that righteousness again. <laughs> oh, I want them to open the door for me. And that's exactly the analogy that Jesus paints. And as I was looking at this passage, it, it, I, I remembered seeing this in the Chosen series, the video series that I, I did a sermon series on some months ago. And I didn't ever show you this scene. It's very brief. Uh, this, in this particular scene, they have him in the house where they're, they're going to lower a paralytic, where he heals the paralytic. I'm not going to show you all that part of the scene. You'll have to watch all the whole scene because it's lengthy. But during that time that he's teaching his disciples and whoever's coming around, he suddenly shares with them this uh, parable about the master coming home from the banquet. Watch this. Are you having a party? 
We've heard voices. Mara, please come in. Uh, Rabbi, these are our neighbors, Mara and Eliel. Oh, we've heard about you. Have you? The parable of the, the net. net. I have a question about that. Please, our master is tired. He's had a long day of walking. It's all right. It's all right. You said angels would come and separate the evil from the righteous. Mm. How soon do you think that they would come, Rabbi? My friends and I recently returned from a wedding. The father of the bride was a man of great wealth, Abner. As the night got longer, near the end of the feast, what do you think the servants were doing back home? Hmm. Waiting, if they're good at their jobs. Waiting where? In their rooms? In the kitchen? At the gate. Ah, at the gate. Doing what? Just standing there in the dark? Holding lamps. But why? Why wouldn't they just relax? Because they don't know when he's coming back. Suppose they figured the master was delayed in coming. So they took a nap on his bed, got drunk on his wine and let their lamps burn down. That's easy. They would be fired and then kicked out, called a name and told that if they ever show their face around here again... My friends, shalom, shalom. We were just passing by and heard a familiar voice. <laughs> we heard about the wedding. Can you do that to the well by my house? <laughs> you know them? Yes, Mary introduced them to me. Ah, stick around. Hmm? Why not? You were saying, teacher? Ah, yes. Thank you, James. The servants. So it will be. At the end of all things, neither the angels in heaven, nor the Son of Man, nor the day or the hour, but only the Father. So you must always be ready, with your lamps trimmed and burning brightly. Okay, that's profound, but that's exactly what we need to be doing as a church. We should not be caught off guard. I do believe. I don't know when Jesus is coming back. I don't know, but I do think it's soon. And I don't want us to be waiting for anything else other than the return of Christ. We need to go about doing what the kingdom needs to do, what we need to do in the kingdom. We need to go about doing what God's church is supposed to do, bearing much good fruit so that when he comes back, we're ready. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. So for the next six months, what are we going to do? <clears throat> I love what Robin did with Vacation Bible School. We just had that. And where most churches canceled Vacation Bible School, of course, uh, and we knew some months ago as a staff that was going to be logistically difficult with all those children keeping them socially distanced. And so uh, that was the tendency or the option was to cancel. If we had canceled Vacation Bible School, nobody would have thought anything bad. They would have said, we understand, everybody else is canceling too. But Robin didn't want to do that, and we didn't want to do that. So Robin came up with this idea that she would make kits for everybody and send those, or make those available for all the homes with children. And then we would do an online vacation Bible school with skits and sharing the gospel and other things for VBS. And that's exactly what we did. I'd say making lemonade out of lemons, I think. 2020 is, you know, in China, they have symbols for their years, the year of the dragon, the year of the tiger. Well, this would be the year of lemonade. <laughs> we as a church do what we can. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't get tired. Don't make excuses that we're going to go ahead and move forward and do what we can do this year. I love Lisa and Hubert Clark. They're wonderful. <clears throat> she came to me 
a, a few months ago and said, you know, Journey to Bethlehem is going to be coming up this Christmas. And I knew then they had, were predicting that we would not have a vaccine until the end of the year or sometime during next year. And so what do you do for Journey to Bethlehem? Because we pack everybody in here as they're waiting in, in the lobby for uh, JTV. And Lisa said, you know, we can cancel. And I, I, I knew right then that's the default answer during a pandemic, just cancel everything. But I didn't want to do that, and she didn't want to do that. So Lisa said, you know what? I was at this church uh, before I came to First Baptist Church in another town, and we did this drive-through journey to Bethlehem. It was a drive-through thing. It had 11 or 12 scenes, and people would drive up to a scene, and all of you, First Baptist Church, you are actors, and you're wearing your costumes, and you act out the scene. There are no spoken parts that are going to happen this year. And if you've been thinking, I don't want to do the acting thing because I'm not good at acting. I don't like to say things. You don't have to say a thing. You're just going to act it out for one car. And then that car goes to the next station. Next car comes up. And you act out that brief scene to that car. And it's going to happen over it. So it doesn't matter if there's vaccine, no vaccine. We're going to have Journey to Bethlehem this year. And that's what I think we should be doing as a church, not what should we counsel, but how can we do it and still be productive and, and share the gospel in the kingdom of God this year. So in the weeks and months to come, by the way, uh, the upward sports, we talked and talked about canceling upward sports for this fall, the football, but it's flag football. It's not tackle football. It's no contact sports. It's going to be outdoors. And I said, no. And, and Michael was the same way. We don't want to cancel that. We canceled too much already. We're going to have that. We're going to find a way to glorify God in the middle of that. And we're going to have an opportunity because those people, those parents and those kids have been cooped up now for months. It's a perfect time to invite them to church. Amen? So we're going to do what we can in, in, for the rest of this year, in the next six months, to make this as fruit-bearing as possible. And I'm open to your suggestions and to your ideas. We want to know. We've not done this before either. If you have ideas that God puts something on your heart, well, not what we can't do, but what can we do during this time? I want us to be productive. I want us to be ready when the master comes back and he doesn't find us sleeping. Can we do that? Let's pray together. Father God, we ask and pray that you would help us to be productive in the months to come, that we don't write off the next six months. If we did that, other people would understand. We can make those excuses to convince them and to convince ourselves it's okay. Father, there's no loophole in your word for a pandemic. You call us to live productive lives. Help us to do that. We also know that there is no time and no excuse to not be light. You've called us to be light in a dark world, and this dark world is getting even darker, if that's possible. It desperately needs revival. Our nation needs revival. It needs to see the light and to know the light. And that's not going to happen if we're wallowing in the darkness with everybody else. Oh, forgive us. Lord, forgive us where we've hated. It's so easy. It's so popular. We find ourselves hating and justifying it, thinking we're all righteous because we're pointing out the evil in the world as though nobody else can see it. Forgive us for hating Help us to do what Christ calls us to do. I tell you, he says, love your enemies. <clears throat> so Lord, if our enemy is another nation, help us to love them. If our enemy is our neighbor, help us to love them. If our enemy is another political party in our mind, help us to love them. You call us to be agents of light 
and agents of love. And you didn't mean that just hypothetically. You expect us to do that. Help us. Give us the strength. Remind us when we're giving into hatred online or as we watch the news. Help us to be reminded. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm a Christian. I'm not allowed to do that. I'm not allowed to say those things, even though those are awful people and they do awful things and I can justify it. But God says, no, I'm to love them. Doesn't mean we agree with them. It doesn't mean we condone what they do. We can hate what they do, but we can't hate them. We are called to love them. Remind us right now, Father, that there's not a single person in this, on this planet for which Christ did not die. There's not a single person alive today, no matter how radical they may be, or how wicked their life, or what evils they have done, there's not a single person in this world that you don't love and that you're not willing to forgive. So Father, I pray that you would help us use the power of love to overcome the dark, to overcome the hate, to overcome evil that is all around us. Help us to be your agents, your ambassadors in this world, as we're called to be. Empower us, empower us, infill us, encourage us, admonish us as we go forward today. As you're praying, no one's looking around. Can I challenge you this morning, right now? Are you going to write off the next six months? You're going to loiter through life? You're going to allow the government or a virus or anything else to paralyze you into doing nothing? Is that what you're going to do? What if this is the last six months of your life? Is that the way you want to spend your last six months? Doing nothing? No. No. Because we don't know. God wants your life to be productive. He wants you and I to bear good fruit. And He has empowered us and equipped us to do that very thing. As a church, I want you to know my commitment is that is what we are going to do this year, today, right now. We're going to be productive. We're going to bear good fruit as best we can for the glory of God and for His kingdom. And I want to challenge you right now to come before God and say, God, I'll be a part of that. I'm not going to wait. I'm going to do that right now, right here. I'm going to wait for the government to give me a guideline. I'm not going to wait for a virus to go. I'm going to do it right here, right now. I make that commitment. Could be that you need to take that first step of accepting Christ and submitting to His Lordship. You can't skip that step. You'll never be productive in your life. You will never be productive in your life until or unless you surrender your life to Jesus Christ. He is your Savior. He saved you from your sins. He has re redeemed you from your life of hatred. And He desires to do that if you'll come to Him and confess Him as your Savior and Lord and believe in the resurrection. And maybe you want to take that step this morning. Maybe God has called you or your family to join with First Baptist Church and you want to fight the good fight here in this place. And God will help you to be productive here. Or maybe you just want to come and kneel and make your commitment to your God. God, I'm not waiting until January. Right now, I want to bear good fruit. Father, forgive me for those times that I've hated. Help me to love instead of hate. Help 
my love to overcome and overwhelm the hate that is around me. Help me to be light in a dark world. If God is leading right now, here's your opportunity. Don't miss it. Would you stand? Nobody's looking around. And as you pray, and at home, if you're watching from home, the same, I want to challenge you right where you are. God can use you for His glory, even now, especially now, if you'll allow Him to do that. As we pray right now, this invitation is for you. You come. Well, thanks for joining us today online for our worship service. We hope that you are ministered and encouraged to while you're with us. And we just want to remind you that you can connect with us online by going to fbcazel.org forward slash connect. We hope to see you again next week.